If you haven't kept your finger in the scriptures, would you open once again to Romans, the sixth chapter? We are actually embarking on something a little bit uh, different from the sixth chapter through the eighth chapter, where we're dealing with a very, very important outgrowth of what we've covered from the middle of the third chapter up through the fifth chapter. When you preach through these uh, earlier chapters of the book of Romans, there is a theme that emerges that is perhaps one of the greatest themes that we embrace as followers of Christ, and it is the grace of God. We've been singing this morning extensively about God's grace, wonderful selection of songs that bring our attention to God's grace. And we realize that it is by the grace of God that a person can find forgiveness of sins and a free gift of eternal life. Some years ago, I had been preaching on these chapters, and uh, a lady came to me following the morning service, and I want to quote what she said to me. She said, um, I agreed with everything you said except one thing. You didn't say that it is necessary to live a good life. You make it sound as though all we have to do to be saved is believe. That is exactly what I said. And that is exactly what I meant. When it comes to the salvation of our souls, it is not the grace of God plus our works that allows us to enjoy the benefits of forgiveness and life. It is the grace of God alone, based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone, that we receive through faith alone. And at the moment we trust in Christ as our Savior, we are born again, we receive a new life, and we are, as the Scriptures would declare it, justified. We are declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Therefore, it is belief and not works in any way that commend us to God. The confusion that this lady was experiencing, I hope, was cleared up later on, and that was she was not able to differentiate between justification and sanctification. Justification is the legal declaration of God declaring righteous the sinner who by faith accepts Christ as Savior. Sanctification is the process by which the life of Christ is now being lived out and developed in the life of the believer. Sanctification is an ongoing process, though there are times when the Lord says that we have been sanctified. And that is absolutely accurate. In God's sight and in our standing before him, we've not only been justified, but we stand before him as having been made totally righteous in Christ and the certainty of our presence with him to be conformed to the image of Christ because we will see him as he is has already in God's economy taken place. But in our experience... Sanctification is an ongoing process that shows that a change has really taken place within the life of a believer. Perhaps to understand better, what all this implies is that when we trust Christ, we are given such a new life that a genuinely born-again individual 
cannot continue to live the way he or she used to live before they trusted Christ as Savior. Because what, what I hear from time to time is a statement like this. Oh, pastor, you mean that a person can believe in Jesus Christ and then live any way they want and still be saved? No, I don't believe that for a moment. I believe that a person believes in Jesus Christ can't live the way they used to anymore. There is a change, a fundamental transformation that takes place within our lives, within us individually, that then manifests itself in a life that's lived for the glory of God. It doesn't mean that it's going to be lived perfectly for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, when you come to a passage like this, it's sometimes very easy to become confused in not understanding fully where we stand in the economy of God's having forgiven us as followers of Christ. We do not become sinless. But by the same token, we cannot continue to practice our sin once we are born again. Can we commit acts of sin? Absolutely. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But before we do, what I've just been explaining to you really is a question that Paul was either directly asked or something that he anticipated would be asked of him as we begin this sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Look back at the first verse, and he raises the question that we've really been dealing with to this point. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if the grace of God is magnified through the sinfulness of individuals, even after they come to Christ as their Savior, would the sinfulness of those individuals continue to magnify the grace of God even to a greater extent? Paul's response is so hard, our English just can't pick it up. In the next verse, you see the negative response Paul gives in verse 2 when he says this, Certainly not. It is the strongest expression you could give in denying something that someone else said. In the, in the Greek, may genoita. May it never be. Don't think that for a moment. Because when you've come to Christ, you are now under new management. Things have changed. You've been taken over by someone who has given you new life, which is going to lead you in a new direction of life. And so what he does in these first 14 verses of chapter 6 is he tells us how this new management that we're under after we trust Christ as our Savior comes about. And what he does is he says there uh, in those first few verses that the believer is united with Christ in his death. There in verse 2, Certainly not, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We now have been united with Christ in his death. Now what this implies, and and it's even further than an implication, it is a direct statement, that this is a permanent union. Once again, look back at this passage, and there in the second verse where it says, we who died to sin, how can we live any longer in it? That little phrase, died 
to sin is written in such a way that it was an event that took place in the past that has present and continuing implications that will not fail. In other words, what we experienced when we trusted Christ as Savior and what we didn't experience but a spiritual truth that took place when we trusted Christ was that at that moment we died to sin and now from that point on we live within the realm of death to sin. That means that the forces of sin that once had free sway within our lives no longer have that free sway. But they are still there. Something else that's important for us to understand is that it is a one-sided union. Notice what it says there in verse 2 again. Certainly not, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We died to sin, it did not die to us. Do you get that? A death has taken place when you trust Christ as Savior. But there was only one dimension of death that occurred. And here's what it boils down to. Though we have died to sin, sin itself has not died to us, so though our position is different in Christ, the realities of the temptations that can come our way can still be there, but you don't have to listen to them anymore. How many times have you poked a dead person and said, I want you to do this? <laughs> Probably never, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's kind of a, a, a silly question and yet is exactly what is being said here. Once we have died spiritually to sin, sin can still, the, the presence of that nature, that sinful inclination that dwells within us, can continue to poke at us and try to get us to do things, but we don't have to listen to that anymore. We have died to sin. And so Paul is making it clear what this new position is in Christ. And he bases that upon what we read in the third verse. Notice, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Some people have read this passage and they have instantly taken their thoughts to the realm of water baptism. This is not speaking of water baptism. It has nothing to do with the person being immersed in the, the, the baptistry. It has nothing to do with that other than to say there is a picture that should be conveyed when water baptism takes place. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? It's because... Paul wrote this under the direction of the Holy Spirit in such a way that he used passive verbs. And the passiveness of the verb says this, you who were baptized, it was something that was done to you, it was not something you did. Do you see the difference? Something that's done to you as opposed to something that you do. You can choose to declare your personal faith through the waters of baptism, but something else has taken place that really becomes 
pictured by that step of declaration that you make when you're being baptized. And that is, the Holy Spirit of God has taken you and placed you into the body of Christ. Now, we have spoken of this before, but I want you to listen what Paul wrote when he wrote to the Colossians about this. Very short verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what he is telling us is this. When you trust Christ as Savior, you die to sin, and you are now placed into the body of Christ, and you are fully clothed with him. All right? I want that to sink in for a moment there's some pretty important implications that are in that verse. I'm going to take a a little step aside here and go into something that we, we don't go into very often, but it's very important for us to understand. There is only one method of baptism that is correct, that is biblical. It is not sprinkling. It is not pouring. It is immersing. Why? If someone ever says to you, the mode of baptism doesn't matter, you take them to Romans chapter 6 and ask them this, when you were placed in Christ, were you just sprinkled with him? When you were placed in Christ, were you just poured with him? Or when you were placed in Christ, were you totally immersed into his body, completely plunged, that is pictured when you are immersed, which, by the way, the word baptize means immerse. That's the definition. The translators blew it for us. They put down a word that doesn't really mean anything, baptize. It means, if you translate it the way you translate other verses, it means immerse. So what the Lord is saying is this. The picture that you're demonstrating of the Spirit's work in placing you into the body of Christ is only reflected one correct way, and that is by immersion being placed with Christ into his death. And guess what's going to happen in just a few verses? You're also going to be part of his resurrection. Can I leave that now? Okay? We need to understand that God's word is very, very clear about this. And, and I don't understand the other concepts that folks have about being baptized. But I want to tell you, I haven't been sprinkled with Christ. And he hasn't just been poured on the top of my head. I have been placed into his body completely. I am immersed into Christ. Vitally important because of something that's going to follow later in this passage. So, he tells us that that this is uh, a one-sided union where we die with Christ, and then he goes on to say this, it is an emancipating union, because in verses 6 and 7 we read this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been free from sin. We are set free from our old self. Do you understand what that means? It means the way I used to live 
is not the way I live anymore. That was me. That person that used to curse the name of the Lord. That was me. That's not me anymore. That old man has been put away. He's not part of my life anymore other than that he is there to influence from memory and perhaps be used by other people to demean the position that I have in Christ because people who don't know the Savior will throw stuff like that up to you after you've come to Christ. But those of you who came to know Christ as your Savior later in life, didn't you see a change take place? You, you realized that the things that would grieve the Lord were no longer things that you wanted to be involved in. You used to get drunk on Friday nights. But you don't do that anymore. You used to be mean to your wife or nasty to your husband. But maybe you trip up every once in a while, but you're really trying to put off that old man, who he was. Because we have died with Christ, and so we have put off that old man, and as a result, the way we used to live is not the way that we live any longer. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians, the third chapter. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. The old man is still going to try to take control. If you were delivered from certain sinful behaviors after you na- came to know Christ as Savior, now those of us who got saved when we were, we were children, it's a little harder for us to lay hold of this. Um, we, we didn't have, I, I was saved when I was seven. And so I, I didn't ride with a motorcycle gang. I wasn't getting drunk on Friday nights. But, but there was still the sinful nature in there, so I, I know and I understand the sinfulness of my sin, the deservedness of my condemnation, and the grace of God that allowed me to come to Christ and open my heart and receive him as my Savior. But some of you had lives that were pretty nasty. And you've seen the change. You know that there was an old man that you're not part of anymore. You've given that up. And Paul said, that old man is going to try to come back. And he's going to try to raise his head and become part of your life once again. So in Ephesians, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says this, concerning your former conduct, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That old man is going to continue to try to take, take control, but you don't have to give, it, give him control. Why? Because you've died in Christ. If it stopped there, it would only be half the story. But Paul is going to go on to tell us this, that after we have recognized our death to Christ, we move on to understand where God has united believers in Christ's resurrection as well. Look back at verses 4 and 5. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. By the way, again, can only be pictured one way. 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. He is telling us now, That when we trust Christ as Savior, not only do we die to sin, but we are made alive to God through Christ, and that is eternal life, which is given the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. Why is that important to understand? It's important for this reason. Sometimes people have the idea that when they trust Christ as their Savior, they are now going to live forever in heaven. Is that appropriately understood. Yeah, that is. But you are going to live forever anyway. You're you're going to live forever. You have been created for eternity. And so the destination of your eternal life, when you trust Christ as Savior, moves from hell, and ultimately the lake of fire, into the presence of God, in heaven. But eternal life does not speak merely of duration. Eternal life is now a whole new quality of life. I belong to Jesus. I dwell in Christ. And the whole tenor of my life now changes because I have a new quality of life that I can live, which I could not live until I trusted Christ as my Savior. So now, things change, not merely because of my death to sin, but they change also because of my life to God through Christ. I can actually do things now that are pleasing to God. Isn't that neat? Okay, see, I I really can't tell where you are on this. Let me back up and say something you have to understand. Do you understand that an unsaved person can do nothing to please God? Okay, some of you don't get that yet. Before you come to Christ, you can do nothing to please God. There is none righteous... No, not one. There is none who doeth good. No, not one. All of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags and putrefying sores. How many of the good things, quote unquote, that you do as an unbeliever are considered good before God? None. They're they're like filthy rags putrefying sores. Why? Because whatever is not of faith is sin. All the behavior of every person who doesn't know Christ as Savior is done outside of Christ. Are they accepted by God? No. We are accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? It's Jesus. So when we, when we live our lives apart from Christ, there is nothing we can do because now we're trying to live on the basis of our own good works which don't exist 
until we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that the deeds that I do in him can be pleasing to the Lord and can ultimately be rewarded by the Lord. Do you see the importance of understanding this flow of events? Do you see the importance of understanding that you're saved only by the grace of God? Nothing that you did could ever please God because everything you did was outside of the person of Christ. And it's not until you are baptized into Christ till you put him on, till you are immersed in him, it's not until then that you can do anything that is pleasing to God. But here's the good news. Once you do know Christ as your Savior, you can do things that are pleasing to him. And you can glorify God. And you can do things that ultimately he is going to reward. And some people say, well, is it really a good motivation to be energized by the desire for rewards? Well, apparently the Lord thinks so because he puts that out in front of us. He tells us that we're going to be rewarded. And it's part of the glory that he's going to receive because you know what we do with our rewards, don't you? Give them right back to him and we say, it's all because of your grace. All because of your grace. Is it hot in here? Not not yet. I don't have any more. <laughs> That's about it right there. All right. He gives us this new quality of life. And then I want you to notice also, as we move down to verse... Uh, well, we, we can actually even stay at those verses. He elevates us to a whole new sphere of life. Now, let me, let me get us to that. So, there it is. He elevates us to a new sphere of life. What does that mean? Let me read the scripture to you and picture in your mind the implications of this passage. In Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 4 through 6, listen to this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and Uh, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. All right, we've talked about all of that. But listen to this. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were buried with Christ, a sinner. We were raised with Christ, a saint. And our citizenship changed to the point where in the sight of God, wherever his son is, you and I are also. Have you thought about that? I love my country. But more importantly, I love my Savior. And my citizenship is as an American... But that is a secondary citizenship to my citizenship, which is in heaven, where I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So when the father looks at his son, guess who he sees? Me! 
Me. And, and all of you who know Christ as your Savior can say, Me. He sees us in Christ. What is it that maintains our security in the Savior? It's the work that God did, baptizing us into the person of Christ. It does not depend upon our acts, though we want to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to him, but it, it is not relinquished if we fail, if we commit an act of sin. That position we have in Christ is so secure that when the Father looks at his Son, he sees me... And he will continue to see me because I am sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Is that not good news? See, we, we embrace the grace of God. Yeah, amen. We, we embrace the grace of God, but think about the implications of that in the way it works out in our lives. And so we, we have this new sphere of life in which we live, and it gives us that new assurance of life. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. If it doesn't have dominion over Christ, guess who else it doesn't have dominion over? Us. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. We have a settled position in Christ. When you look at verse 8, where it says, we died, that is an event that took place that has eternal implications. We died in Christ, we are now raised in Christ, and we are his for all eternity. There is where our security lies. That's why later on Paul's going to say, once you've trusted Christ, you can't be condemned. You cannot be condemned. Because you're in Christ. And it is Christ's righteousness that pleases the Father, not your behavior, not mine. Though, in the process of sanctification, having been justified, I am, by the grace of God, living a life that is more conformed to the image of Christ, and I fall from time to time, and I have to get up, uh, if you think you don't sin anymore, by the way, there are people that believe once they're saved, they don't sin anymore. I've talked to them. I asked them, how, how can you say that? And they, this is the honest truth. This is their answer. We make mistakes. Come on. Your mistake would be my sin. Uh, if you think you don't sin anymore, take a look to the person to your left and to your right. Come on, come on. Take, look at them. Look at them. Do you think they would tell you that you have not reached perfection yet? And the Lord will tell us that as well. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we can continue to commit acts of sin that does not remove us from having been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the person of Christ who is seated in the heavenlies and I am seated there with him and it is such a sure situation that God says, I am looking at you right now and the only thing that's waiting is your coming to actually be here because you're in my son. He finally tells us this. 
He frees believers from their former bondage. Do you remember when Christ raised Lazarus from the dead? Do you remember that? Lazarus was dead. Christ said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the garden, or out of the, the tomb. Okay? Was Lazarus alive? Yes. But what had to happen? They had to unbind him. They had to take off all those sinful, uh, all the rags, I just played my hand, all the rags in which Lazarus was bound and the implication being that when we trust Christ as Savior, there are those old things that have to be torn away, but I still have life. I am still in the realm of being at the right hand of the Father with Christ in Him, and that never changes simply because I have failed one way or another. Now, what, what, let, me, let me get us to this. What is it that is going to help us understand these truths? First of all, you have to know them. Why, why do you think it's so important? And I'll tell you something, folks. I haven't sweat like this in a long time. Well, it's not so much the jacket as the, the truth of what I'm trying to get across and, and what I realize is human weakness, and I am sweating like a pig. It, preach it. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure where I'd find that verse. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, why is it so important? Why do we get so energized about stuff like this? I want to show you why. Look back at verse 3. Look at this. Or do you not know? Do you not know? Look at verse 6. Knowing this. Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Do you understand what the writer is telling us here? You need to know these truths. It is important for you to know what is going on in the realm of your salvation. Because if you do not know this stuff, you will be tripped up. And people who teach falsehood will be able to lead you astray. And you will find yourself going through difficult times, and you will have a really hard time believing that God still loves you when the bottom is falling out, unless you know all these truths that we have in Christ. And then, the second element of this is that you count on these truths, so that... Uh, where is it? I hit the wrong thing. It should be B, count on these truths. First know these truths, then count on these truths. In other words, when, when your feelings have a tendency to change because of the circumstances of your life, what you need to remember is this. I died to sin. I'm alive to God through Christ Jesus. I have been baptized into the body of Christ so I can put off the old man. What I was doesn't have to rule me anymore. I now live a whole new realm of life, and I am seated in a whole new realm in Christ in the heavenlies, regardless of what happens, regardless of what comes my way.
And once having done that, yield to those truths. Say no to the old sovereign. The old sovereign was sin. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. No, no, no. I am saved by grace, but I live determining the direction through which side of this equation I yield myself. If I still am alive to sin, then I'm going to go that way. But if I have died to sin, now I can choose to go this way. And here's where the good life enters the picture. I can choose to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. There's some deep theology that's taught through songs. And this song came to mind when I was thinking about the importance of the theology behind what we have in Christ as our Savior. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I'm stopping there. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Back up. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. There's no better theology. No better theology. You know, I was thinking... What would it mean to live a life of commitment to living in the realm of life that we have in Christ? And the only thing I could say would be this. There is one statement God will never make. God will never say, you made too great a commitment to me. See, we're either going to be committed to the old way or we're going to be committed to the new life that we have in Christ. Let's stand. Father, what a privilege to open this portion of your word and to understand beyond just the reality that I'm saved to know how that was accomplished to know that through the death the burial and the resurrection of Christ your righteous demands were completely satisfied to know that by faith we can reach out and accept the grace that you offer through the person of Christ And we can receive him as our Savior and pass from death into life, being placed into the body of Christ in whom we are secure forever. As we go from here, Father, I pray that the level of our commitment to live lives that are consistent with our position would be increased. 
In Christ's name I pray, amen. God bless you.